was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, veteran actor Simon Jones. Simon Jones made his Broadway debut opposite Christine Baranski and Cynthia Nixon in The Real Thing, and his other Broadway credits include Benefactors, Getting Married, Private Lives with Joan Collins, Waiting in the Wings with Lauren Bacall, The Real Inspector Hound and the 15-Minute Hamlet, The School for Scandal, The Herbal Dead, Ring Round the Moon, Blythe Spirit, Farinelli and the King, and most recently, last season's Trouble in Mind. His off-Broadway credits include Darling of the Day, Death Takes a Holiday, You Never Can Tell, and Privates on Parade, and you may also know him from his appearance on radio in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or in his current TV role as Bannister on HBO's The Gilded Age. So now, without further ado, here's Simon Jones. So, I would love to start by asking you, um, how did you first become interested in theatre? Well, I think I suppose I became interested in theatre when I was first at uh, at school, boarding school. We were doing an all-male version of She Stoops to Conquer, and the headmaster's wife was directing it. We called her Bubbles because she had tight curly hair, and she's still alive to this day in her late 90s, believe it or not. Looking at me, it's amazing. I was about 17, and, uh, and I played old Marlowe. And uh, everyone used to say, because I, I got to play the part of Sarah Briakoff in Uncle Vanya, another old man, endless old men. And um, and they say, oh, one day you'll grow into the roles. And I suppose I have, finally, all these years later. But anyway, so she stoops to conga. Old Marlowe has virtually nothing to do except express outrage by listening behind the screen um, to the uh, the sliminess of his nephew. Um, or is it his son? His son, I think, who's trying to... Uh, well, you know the story. Anyway, be that as it may, I thought, this is rather fun. I rather like this. So um, I was cast again the following year in a play called The, Fa- uh, the Stronger Lonely by a German called Fritz Hochwelder. You had to search for plays that only had all-male cast. And this was set in a Jes- Jesuit colony in Paraguay. And uh, the Father Provincial was the main role. And I had a long death scene. And while I was lying dying, I paused for a moment and realized that you could hear a pin drop. And I thought, ooh. Of course, it's never happened since, but I just loved that. I thought, oh, I have them in the palm of my hand. And this was at 18, again, playing a rather mature man, but never mind. We finished off with Journey's End, and by that time, I'd caught the bug. But when I went to Cambridge University, I was told by... It was assumed by the family that I would read law. Um, And I think I'd once said, oh, that looks like a good job of somebody who'd been a lawyer. but when I got there, the uh, <laughs> the law tutor said to me, you've no inclination, aptitude or competence in this field. Why do you want to read law? I mean, this was after two questions. I don't think I'd even got that far. He said, this is a complete waste of time. Why don't you just go away and do your best subject? 
which is, oh yes, English. Off you go. And that was my interview. And, and they admitted me. So that was all very odd. Um, and so it continued, in a way. <laughs> that sort of thing has been going on ever since. And how did you get a formal training in, in acting? Oh, this is a rather interesting thing. I didn't have a formal training in acting. Oh. Um, when I was at uh, Cambridge, I did. Uh, I was there for three years, reading English. You either read it, write it, or teach it, I suppose. I didn't want to do the writing or teaching. So um, <laughs> that's the way I deliver it then instead. Um, I did, uh, there was plenty of opportunity to do amateur dramatics. I did 22 plays in the three years I was there, which is rather a lot, isn't it? Hardly time to rehearse one before you're doing the next. A bit like the old English repertoire. But anyway, I, it gave me a lot of experience because there were also people who were practicing to be critics and uh, they all fancied themselves frightfully sophisticated and you, you had to deliver. Um, I know that in drama school, you know, they keep you sort of protected for the first two years or something before they throw you in front of an audience. But we were there from the beginning and we learned by our mistakes, hideously. And, um, and then I still entertained thoughts by the time I got to my degree that I would, uh, I would perhaps go to drama school and learn the finer, finer points. But at the Edinburgh Festival, I was um, in a play called Shoreline about a whole lot of people sitting on a beach. I can't remember really what happened in it. But um, I was noticed by Harold Hobson, who was the uh, lead critic of the Sunday Times at the time. And um, I became one of the, one of Hobson's choices. Um, Ian McKellen had been one before me and several other people. But he decided he, he liked me and liked my performances and uh, recommended me to an agent that he knew who was happened to be at the Edinburgh Festival as well. Uh, he was the king of the understudies, that man. Um, I, I had to escape from him after a few years. But the first thing he did was to set me up for an interview on my way from Edinburgh back to London in Yorkshire, the wilds of Yorkshire, to join a children's theatre group. Wonderful children's theatre group. Gosh. about it, I shudder. But nonetheless, I got the job and um, it gave me an opportunity to earn my equity card. You had to do a certain number of weeks provisionally, a little blue cap. I remember you had a little blue folder. And then when you became a full member of equity, it was red. I don't even know where it is now. Um, but um, I thought, well, any means to become a professional, that's the thing to do. It was fairly grim, I have to say. We did two shows a day, driving around in a terrible old transit van to, um, to these schools, uh, doing these inane plays. Our director wanted to, produce, to, to give Bradford, which was the basic place, the famous old wall city, uh, in, in Yorkshire, to give Bradford its own resident repertory company. But Bradford really wasn't interested. Um, and he thought, well, if we can prove our worth doing this schools entertainment, then it'll be, it'll be fine, you know, they'll regard us with respect. Well, we, uh, we carried on doing this. And I, I assume he got grants, obviously, from the educational authority to do these plays. I have no idea how they went over. We could sort of tell, I suppose, how engrossed the children had been because they obviously didn't ask to go to the bathroom and you could tell whether it was a six or seven puddler at the end of the year because <laughs> they all sat on the floor in the gym and uh, if they had been unable to contain, contain themselves but nonetheless wouldn't go to the bathroom I assumed we were fairly successful um, and then we did a number of ad adult plays America Hurrah a play by Jean-Claude Van Italy completely above the heads of the people of Yorkshire and indeed of ours but we did it and we made the papers 
largely because we managed to attract one old lady in um, at one book place where we performed. And she gave an interview. She became quite a celebrity. I can't oh. understand it, she said. I don't know why people don't go to the theatre. And I thought, well, I know why. They don't know what we're doing or why. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I stayed there for the for the due nine months and managed to escape. And uh, then I went off to an equally godforsaken spot called Crewe, which is where the trains um, always used to change. If you were touring in England, you changed at Crewe. It, uh, it was well known for a Rolls-Royce factory, and, uh, and, uh, and it made railway cars. And um, it did have the most beautiful Edwardian musical theatre, which was largely deserted, and we didn't use it, um, except for one or two productions. Um, and uh, we did fortnightly reps, so we did a new play every two weeks. And I met some people I still know to this day, and somehow we survived. And then on to Derby, where Derby was another northern town, but we're moving slowly down the country towards London. Derby was three weekly reps, so we had a little bit more time to learn the parts. And um, I suppose all this was good practice. Yes. And by the time I'd done all that, I thought, well, there's no point in going to drama school now. I'm on, on the way. And then the next thing, I had um, my West End debut in a play called Bloomsbury. <laughs> Uh, which was by a man called Peter Luke, who wrote a very successful play called Hadrian the Seventh. But this was not as successful. It had a very good cast, Daniel Massey, Penelope Wilton, who's well known from Downton Abbey now. And in fact, that's where they met. And in fact, when I worked with her recently on Downton Abbey the movie, uh, we were talking about this, and she said, oh, I remember that. And she said, um, one of the saddest things was I never got a poster. I said, well, I have a spare. <laughs> and uh, she was delighted. And uh, so I was able, after all these years, to give her a spare poster for Bloomsbury. I think we lasted about six weeks, but Harold Hobson gave me a rave notice, and I was quite nervous about going to the stage door and uh, telling them. Uh, well, no, just facing them, because they'd all read the paper. I mean, he had been quite rude about the whole production, except for this one moment that reminded him of Tom Courtney in King and Country. It was a ridiculous thing to observe. I was in, I had to endure a medical inspection before... Daniel Massey's, the great East Seat Lytton Strachey, came on to have his. So basically I was the straight setup, having a medical, a medical inspection so he could come on and then do it all wrong, you know, oh. break all the rules. And it really wasn't a part. Um, anyway, he said, I was the only moment of truth and reality in it. So I went to the theatre with fear, fear and foreboding. <laughs> Daniel Massey put his hand on my shoulder and said, very good. He's completely crazy, but don't worry, it's very useful. But Yvonne Mitchell, who was also in the car, said, well, it's completely crazy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I should ignore it if I were you. So uh, there were two different views, but I, um, I thought, well, he's still on my side. And he continued to be so, until, sadly, he died. And I thought that was going to be the end of my career. <laughs> As Hobson's choice. <laughs> And so at this time when you were performing in England, did you have America in mind or did you think that you would stay in England? Absolutely. I had no idea of coming to America. Not the remotest thought. Um, no, I carried on at the West End and I did bits and pieces of television. And then uh, my friend Douglas Adams uh, wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And then sometime later I said, I, well, actually, no, he didn't write Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He wrote some scripts for a radio called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and called me up and said, because we'd stayed in touch since Cambridge, um, I've written a part with you in mind. 
Um, would you like to do it? So I pretended to say, well, I don't know, I've got a very busy calendar. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, and it was kind of fascinating to find out. Right. So I did that, and then I did a, a, a thing called Brideshead Revisited, which was one of the earlier classic TV series for Granada. That I got, again, I don't ever get any jobs through auditions. I get them because somebody knows me and somebody recommends me to someone else. And honestly, that's the best way to do it. Well, I loathe auditions anyway. Who doesn't? Um, but on this occasion, I'd done a play called The Millionaires by George Bernard Shaw, the Haymarket Theatre, with uh, some current people, uh, stars there, Nigel Hawthorne, who later became a knight, and Penelope Keith, who later became a dame. And uh, I got beaten up regularly by Penelope Keith, as her lover, Adrian Blunderbland. And it was directed by a man called Michael Lindsay Hogg. Now, Michael Lindsay Hogg, uh, interesting man, uh, he had been a director of a pop concert show called Ready, Steady, Go, which uh, was revolutionary in its own kind. And he revolutionized the filming of, of uh, rock music. He also bore a striking resemblance to Orson Welles. And uh, he later found out, uh, admitted, in fact, that he was the illegitimate son of Orson Welles. And uh, he's, he's now an artist, a painter. He directed The Millionaires. We had a good time in that. Went around puffing a big cigar, a bit like his father. And um, he, he then directed The Millionaires and popped me in it. And uh, curiously enough, I remember going to an awards dinner. I wasn't entitled to go to this awards dinner at all. Um, the playwright Peter Nichols had written a play called Privates on Parade, in which I had appeared, and he wanted uh, to pay tribute to an old friend of his who was also in the cast, Joe Melia. Joe Melia liked to go to awards dinners like he would go to the dentist, so he asked me to go instead. And, uh, and so I went instead, much to Peter Nichols' fury, because he couldn't then give this tribute to his friend who wasn't there. But I found myself sitting next to John Mortimer. John Mortimer was a writer and QC, uh, or Queen's Council, a lawyer, who wrote many novels and adaptations. Rumpole at Bailey was one of his famous things. He had been commissioned to write Brideshead Revisited. And as we sat chatting, he said, oh, you'd be rather good in Brideshead Revisited. I said, yes, I think I would. Well, there was no further mention of it, and I don't know that he had any say in it, but Michael Lindsay Hogg cast me as the stuffy elder brother in Brideshead Revisited. And uh, so things were tootling along rather well. You know, yes. I had, these were two cult TV series, and I was doing just fine. And uh, then we made a, a film of Peter Nichols' play, Privates on Parade, uh, with the original cast, except that Nigel Hawthorne was replaced by John Cleese um, for added box office luster, I suppose. I spent a lot of time chatting to Cleese uh, about this, that, and the other. And at the end of filming, he said, I'm going on to do a um, film of the Pythons. Uh, we occasionally write seven people in a scene that uh, there are only six of us, so you want to come and do a few lines? Mm, I have to look at my diary. Of course I did it. And, um, and there I met my soon-to-be wife, uh, Nancy Lewis, who was their American manager and had single-handedly brought the, Amer the Pythons over to America. She had the combination lock. She knew the combination to the hospitality fridge, I always used to say, so she was obviously somebody worth getting to know. She was there in charge of suppressing publicity, in fact, <laughs> um, because the Pythons didn't like that sort of thing. You know, yeah. only allow the odd person to interview them. And, uh, uh, and so I did uh, The Meaning of Life, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, and that's where I met my wife, which is a perfectly apt title, I rather think. 
Now, as Nancy was the American manager of Monty Python, it hardly made sense for her to be in England. So, as I had no particular ties to the business at that time, you know, I, one goes from job to job, I thought, well, I'll come over to England and take my chances. Actually, she did prepare the way somewhat. She had me over to do some uh, publicity for The Hitchhiker's Guide, which was shown on PBS, and, uh, and right to it, but Hit Hitchhiker's Guide mainly. And she introduced me to a man called Herb Sargent, who was the head writer of Saturday Night Live. And uh, she was, he was an old friend, and other Pythons were always appearing individually as guest hosts. And he developed this idea in his brain that he would like to do a, um, a, a basically a half-hour news headlines show, just of news headlines, called The News is the News. And he cast me as co-anchor with a lady called Charlotte Moore, who we know much better as the uh, lady who runs the Irish Rep with great success. Um, and there were a couple of other people, Lynn Thigpen, who won a Tony for a Wendy Wasserstein play, and a fellow called Trey Wilson, another man, delightful man, and a man called Michael Davis, who specialised in juggling um, chainsaws when they're going, and hatchets. Uh, live. I, God knows how we got through it without there being a, a hideous accident. Um, I hope they had that 10 seconds delay. The show was a complete and utter disaster oh. because I thought coming over here, oh, English, American humor is so different from English. I mean, this was my, my, my wife had actually proved that that was wrong by bringing the Pythons over when everyone said it would never work in England. So I should have realized that it just wasn't funny material. And we were canned after about four episodes. One of the worst things, I suppose, was the very first episode when they changed the running order and told us just at the last minute when we were oh. going out in front of a live audience. And somebody got into a confusion with the uh, auto prompt, and sometimes the, the punchlines were just not there. And I couldn't remember what they were. Oh, I, I shudder about it to this day. Anyway, so that was a disaster. But uh, as my friend Marvin Kitman, who was the TV critic for Newsday for many, many years, he said, don't worry. Failure on television means nothing. Uh, nobody even remembers. And uh, so I hung about a bit longer. And then, um, and then I was asked to do... Uh, What's it called? Terra Nova, played by Ted Talley, who then went on to gain a great deal of success writing The Silence of the Lambs, uh, telly, uh, a film script and winning the Oscar. Um, and he gave up the theatre because he found it was, it was not a friendly environment for him. But this play was about Robert Fulton Scott and his expedition to the South Pole. And uh, Robert Foxworth was playing Scott and a number of other characters were all playing the others. And we... We froze to death, basically, at the American Place Theatre. We used to put this very uh, ornate uh, f uh, frostbite makeup on our faces. And it was, it was about this time of the year, and there was a most unusual heat wave. And all the makeup came off and dripped. We could see it dripping off our chins. And we, because they had dressed us as though we really were going to the pole. Dreadful things, covered in fur. We, we lost pounds doing it. However, it was directed by the great and good Jerry Gutierrez, with whom I had a relationship uh, professionally for a few years after, and various other things. And um, when that finished, a part became available in The Real Thing, not Mike Nichols' production, with Jeremy Irons, Glenn Close, and Christine Baranski. Um, Kenny Welch, who played the part of Max, first three acts, first three scenes, uh, was leaving after f five months? Yes, five, I think. And... Um, and I got the part. I must have auditioned for that, surely. 
I have no recollection. Anyway, um, there I was, my Broadway debut night, and it was the day after the Tonys, and both Glenn and Jeremy and Christine had all won Tonys. I was the only one on stage who'd actually literally not been on a Broadway stage before. <laughs> um, so I thought I had nothing to prove, and, and I stayed there for quite a long time, several cast changes, and, uh, and got used to what was going on. What's rather jolly is that, of course, Christine Baranski and Cynthia Mason were both on the cast at the same time, and now I'm working with them on The Gilded Age. Yes, yes, a wonderful. Wonderful reunion. And so I'd be curious to ask about um, two great English actors who you worked with around this time. Um, the first being Ian McKellen, although that was in England, and the second being Nicole Williamson on um, The Real Thing. Golly, what an odd choice. <laughs> um, yes, Ian, Ian I didn't know very well. He directed me. Um, in The Clandestine Marriage, um, an 18th century play with somebody who was even much more interesting, Alistair Sim, who was probably the greatest Scrooge ever um, in The Christmas Carol. It was the last play because he was in fact dying sadly of some form of cancer at the time, but we didn't know and he didn't. He, he was pretty old it seemed. Um, and I was his valet and I had to uh, Basically, I had to feed him all the gags because one of the longest scenes and one of the ones that always set people laughing was how Lord Ogilby got himself together to go out in the morning. So I handed all the props while he put himself together. Um, terrible old wreck into some sort of dandy. Um, and Ian McKellen directed it. And that uh, we bumped into each other a number of times. We never really worked together apart from that. I mean, we know each other. That's... that's and Nickel Williamson, Nickel Williamson was the last cast takeover in The Real Thing. Um, a strange man. Um, we got on all right, but he came in, I think he knew he was just seeing it off, because I think we lasted another five weeks when he joined us. Um, he came, having learned all his words, and just delivered them like a machine gun, and we had to put in our lines whenever he paused for breath, which wasn't very often. I hope for the best. It was a rather strange experience. He was... Um, <laughs> well, subsequent behaviour proved, and previous behaviour, he was a little erratic and, uh, yeah. and a rather bitter man. Things had never quite gone the way he intended, I suppose. Yeah. He had a most wonderful voice, but I do remember sitting some party, oh, maybe it was our closing party, I think it was at Rockefeller Centre, telling me about how everything had gone wrong, how fed up he was with the whole thing. <laughs> and then subsequently, of course, he did I Hate Hamlet, and uh, yeah. of course, a bit of a stir by chasing, <laughs> was it? Was it Evan Handler? I think so. I think with Evan Handler, he assaulted with a ray with a rapier or something. <laughs> across the bum with it. Um, yes, uh, he was well known for having slapped his Ophelia um, while playing Hamlet. And wasn't he the one who actually punched? Yes, David Merrick. It fell him to the ground, I believe. Um, so he didn't care, but he, you could say he was his own worst enemy. <laughs> so those are those two. But uh, you didn't ask me about Laurence Olivier or. Uh, oh. Or um, oh, all sorts of odd people. Um, I did I did meet Olivier on uh, on Brideshead Revisited and had the most wonderful uh, <laughs> experience with him. One evening, we were sitting, uh, staying in one of the hotels um, nearby. We were having dinner after what had been a fairly relaxing day, and um, there was me, uh, Phoebe Nichols, who played my, my sister Cordelia, and uh, and Jeremy Iron sitting opposite him. Um, who was staying in another hotel, naturally. Um, <laughs> and uh, we sat chatting and having dinner. And somehow, I don't know, a little, little twinkle came into the eye of Sir Lawrence, as he preferred us to call him rather than Lordy. Um, 
just kidding, I'm calling him that. But nobody called him Larry either. Thank God, you'd have to know him pretty well. A lot of people pretended to call him Larry, but I don't think he, <laughs> I don't think he knew. Um, he said Sir Lawrence was fine. And uh, anyway, be that as it may, he was sitting there and he was provoking Jeremy. Jeremy had uh, recently married Sinead Cusack, but she was not his first wife. And uh, Sir Lawrence wanted to know how that had come about. Had he got a papal, uh, papal annulment? Or how would that come about? Was the marriage not consummated? <laughs> wicked, wicked grin. Jerry got more and more uncomfortable about the whole thing, and uh, and he kept needling him. And eventually, Jeremy, after coffee, left to go to another hotel, and he turned to us. Olivier turned to me and Phoebe and said, "I don't know. There's something about that young man. Every time he sticks his chin out, I want to punch it." <laughs> <laughs> That was rather, rather fun. And, uh, <laughs> who else did I work with? Oh, well, lots of people. Oh, yeah. One often, one often, feel one often works with people who are, have the most terrible reputations. Um, I remember in your, uh, in your very good uh, chat about uh, yes. applause. Yes, yes, we were talking about how terrifying Be uh, Betty Bacall was. Oh yeah. Hmm. And uh, I worked with her on Waiting in the Wings, uh, play with. The average age of the members of the cast was eighty. Um, Dana, Ivy, and I brought it down quite strikingly, um, the average, but it would have been even higher. I mean, even even the producer, uh, Alex Cohen, he was in his 80s, the director, Michael Langham, the uh, costume designer, Alvin um, Colt, was over 80, and most of the cast were over 80. And um, she, she was supposed to be playing a dreadfully put-upon woman who'd fallen on hard times and had been forced to put, have her pets put down and had no money and had no sense of self-respect and arrived at the, uh, this is the point of the play, arrived at this old actor's home and the, during the course of the play she finds herself and all is well because of the wonderful camaraderie of the people around her. <laughs> Presided over by Rosemary Harris, who uh, Betty McCall described as the queen through gritted teeth. Um, but what was fun about it was that uh, she decided that she wasn't she wasn't going to go for all that down downtrodden put upon <laughs> sort of thing. She insisted on wearing a, an Armani trouser suit, <laughs> and uh, and when she sat there talking about how she had to dispose of her pets because she couldn't afford them anymore, you could see the light glittering off the jewelry <laughs> on her fingers. Um, it was all very strange. We nonetheless persevered. We played the part as though she was playing it as it ought to be played. <laughs> And somehow it worked. I don't quite know how. Whether we hypnotised the audience as well into believing. <laughs> she looked more like somebody who'd been sent from head office to make sure that everything was working smoothly. You know, she, all she needed was a clipboard. Um, but it... Uh, I'd heard of her fearsome reputation, and I thought, dear me, how are we going to get on? But we got to laugh quite early on, at, as, um, as Leroy said. I think uh, she respected her, her fellow professionals if she thought they were professional. As they say in people's obituaries, or they used to, didn't suffer fools gladly. <laughs> they were terribly intolerant and uh, and probably rather hard to get on with. She was always particularly horrible to the people who looked after her, like um, people who did her hair, makeup, or a driver. I, I could not understand why, because you would have thought she depended on them. Didn't matter how what her fellow actor actresses thought, but she was no. That was her strange flaw, and I, I remember it to this day. And um, but she, you have to speak as you find. 
and she could not have been nicer. My mother was very ill in uh, in England at the time, and she wrote a, wrote her a letter, ah. uh, which was absolutely wonderful. It arrived in the hospital, and you can imagine how her stock in this remote little town hospital in Mar in in England um, responded to a letter from Lauren Bacall. I mean, she knew how to use her fame, you know, yeah. she was just wonderful. And uh, my mother recovered and then she got worse again and I thought I must go over. And I said to her, I went to the dressing room and said, I don't really know what to do. She said, I, I, I think I want to go and see how this might be the last time. She said, of course you must. It's only theatre, for heaven's sake. Here today, gone tomorrow. Yes, of course you must go and you must go as soon as possible. The next thing I knew, the producer had actually paid for me to fly. Wow. So, you know. Speak as I find, and we be, we were great friends for a long time. She took a great shine to my son Tim, and uh, and we miss him quite a lot, you know. And who'd have known, you know? Yeah. One uh, one approached her with fear and foreboding, but you have to speak as you find in this biz. And so, when you were first um, coming for the real thing, and around that period, what were some of the biggest differences you found from theatre in England to coming here? Well, calling the half hour at half instead of at 35 minutes always struck me as odd. But then I thought, no, it's actually logical. But I rather like the idea of getting calls on the channel saying, uh, letting you know when your entrance is coming up. Um, over here, you really have to listen. You have to know when you're going on again. So I suppose you, you concentrate a bit more on how the play's going. Um, it used to be the Oxford Playhouse uh, in, in England just opposite the stage door was a pub and uh, people who knew the plays pretty well uh, would go in there for a drink during the show and uh, they had a, a relay of the loudspeaker system in the pub they could hear the play going on and people would say oh i'm on in two minutes okay put out the cigarette don't let anyone drink my pint i'll be back in a minute go on do their scene come back truly amazing Really yeah. amazing. That, uh, that whole tradition, yes. I was, I was unprepared for the Puritanism over here, um, but I think it's probably just as well. Um, when I was doing Privates on Parade on stage, I used to go down to the dressing room of Dennis Quilly, who was uh, the star opposite Nigel Hawthorne, and he'd already have, uh, he'd have a pack of cigarettes ready, those are the days, years ago, and, uh, and a tumbler of scotch. And we'd do that, put that away in the intermission, in the interval, and then go back and do the second half. Never appeared to affect us. You know, nobody, nobody commented on it. Here, it would be simply horrifying. Yeah. Uh, we uh, we took rather great pleasure when we were doing uh, uh, Farinelli and the King. We thought, uh, being a whole lot of that was a whole Brit crew who'd come over and was replacing somebody who'd gone, and um, we decided we would uh, we would sample various bourbons. <laughs> At the end of the show. At the end of the show. But every time we'd come off from our last entrance, um, we, we, we would sample a new, I mean, only a small shot, decide upon it, and then go out for the curtain call. And so we built up a wonderful collection of bottles. And, the, of course, the stage staff were simply horrified. Envious, I think. Because um, they weren't even allowed to have a drink in the theatre. And he had, we had a bar downstairs. I mean, we didn't we we didn't drink during the show. I mean, we had felt we had to respect local customs when when in Rome, and I think they're a bit stricter over there too. I mean, the whole business of drinking is much much more sensible now. I used to go and beat 
I used to go and visit friends in the city who I'd been at college with who were doing, I don't know, financial things, you know, as people do. And I'd meet them in a wine bar on a weekday. I'd dress up in a suit and a tie just to pass unnoticed, just because I thought it'd be fun to, you know, I might have to play a businessman soon, see what it's like. Anyway, they'd be putting away bottle after bottle of claret. And uh, I'd go home, I think. But I'd wake up, say, about four or five in the afternoon, having passed out of my bed, and um, with two books I didn't remember having bought, the bookshop on the way back, and uh, they had gone back to work. And this was the way it was done. I hear, I hear over here the three or four martini lunches that these famous editors of magazines used to indulge in, and then go back and back to the office. I can't imagine how people did it. Well, well of course, they didn't live as long. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, that's so yes, we're going. We we're still talking about the differences. What are the differences? Not really many. I saw a film which I had. I did. I drive my car recently out, oh. and and they're sitting. Re they're sitting reading the play, and they have the most peculiar tradition, where when you finish your line, you tap the table, which is not something you do on stage anyway, and it seemed very strange. It's as though I finished my speak. Now it's somebody else's turn. But you don't point at the person who's going to speak next. Most peculiar thing. Should you get to find yourself watching Drive My Car, you will see them rehearsing Uncle Barney and find it a strange tradition. Um, we don't do that over here, do we? Otherwise, it's pretty much the same, you know. You're doing the same sort of stuff. And I'd love to ask about um, a play you did on tour, which was Aren't We All with Rex Harrison, Claude Colbert. Oh, there you, there you go. <laughs> yes. Well, that was highly comical. Mm. Um, I replaced Jeremy Brett, who was well known for playing Sherlock Holmes in the PBS series. I think he did every single story um, and became slightly crazy, I think, uh, towards the end of his life, thinking he was Sherlock Holmes. I, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and Lynn Redgrave had been in the original. Yes. And. Uh, and George Rose. Anyway, off we went on tour. Um, I have a set of photographs taken by Joan Marcus. So funny. Um, Rex and Claudette go back a long way. I knew the director, Clifford Williams, because he directed me in a play called um, Wild Oats at the RSC a long time ago, about the same time as Privates on Parade, late 70s. And um, he said, I don't know why I do this. It's, uh, I must be masochistic. Um, because the two of them hate each other intensely. I said, surely not. He said, well, trust me. Um, when, we, uh, when we first started rehearsing this, everyone arrived at the rehearsal room. This was in London when it started. And uh, there was no sign of Rex or Claudette. And time went on. Finally, Clifford had a slight suspicion. He went outside and stood on the, on the steps of this church hall where they were performing down in Chelsea. And there were two limos circling the building, and neither one of them was going to get out first. So eventually he flagged them both down, and they got out simultaneously. Um, he would occasionally insult her and called her, well, on one occasion called her a poisonous French dwarf, uh, after which she decided she would not speak to him at all, and only uh, spoke to Clifford in French. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> Clifford, Clifford had a knack for um, attracting these disastrous productions. Do you remember the story of a production called Legends? With Mary oh, Martin? yes, yes. Yes, 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 right. 
Uh, you should read the book if you haven't read it. I have, yes. Oh, you have, well, yes. Well, Clifford was the director. Um, so I suppose they cast him because, uh, as director, so to speak, they asked him to direct because they knew he could deal with these sacred monsters. Um, anyway, it was great fun playing with them. Uh, I got on well with both of them, as usual. Um, now, uh, Claudette was slightly deaf. Um, and she always insisted on having her skirt right up to her hip so, so that you could see admire her legs. This was to distract you from the fact that she had her hands were slightly misshapen by arthritis, but she kept them fluttering about, so you really didn't know. But anyway, that's, that was what was going on there. Rex couldn't see anything. He had, he had so many pairs of glasses, um, and I can't remember what they were all for. Surely two would have done. Anyway. Uh, so he could hardly see what was going on, and Rex could and, and Claudette could hardly hear. And occasionally, I remember on one particular occasion in San Francisco, he said, uh, where is she? She's late. He talked to me. I mean, there was nobody else there. It was extraordinary. Um, and the audience didn't seem to notice. Silly old fool. Um, I'll have such fun with her when she comes on. And then I went off to get her. I, I think, actually, I, I don't think she was late. I, I was supposed to collect her, and I did. And she said, Nasty, nasty man. And uh, and then he dried on a line, and she she laughed. She just thought it was sheer justice. Um, but Rex had an extraordinary technique, which was that uh, at his advanced years, he actually occasionally forgot lines. But what he said was the line in rhythm. And and the audience fell about laughing, thinking they'd heard the funniest thing. But I'm standing there, opposite him, thinking, this is insane. But because they were used to him saying witty lines in a witty way, the witty way was enough. Yeah. Quite an extraordinary thing. Anyway, they were. it was fascinating uh, watching the two of them dueling away. It was their second play together, too. They did a play called The Kingfisher first. And uh, obviously they decided it was a way to make money. And... And uh, I can't imagine why they did it. And he went on and did the, was it the chalk circle? The, the circle. He did the circle later, mm, but not with Claudette. I think Claudette had finally had enough of that. Her estate in Barbados. Uh, but I thought, if I'd stayed in England, what chances would there have been for me to have worked with Claudette Colbert? Oh, Rex Harrison, possibly. Wait, Colbert? Lauren McCall? No, not remote. And that's been the great joy of coming over here, was that I've actually worked with all sorts of people I knew about. And yeah. been in movies that I'd seen, television series, and so on and so forth. It's all been uh, an amazing bonus. I didn't know that I would make a, a living here. I thought I'd be asked to play butlers and lords. I didn't yeah. know, got away with doing a few of those anyway. But um, it, it's ended up being, being really interesting. Oh. 13 times on Broadway. That seems amazing. It is. It is. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, speaking of Rex Harrison, you took on the role of Henry Higgins, I believe, twice with Judy Blazer. And so, oh. what was your interpretation of that like? And, you know. Brilliant, I suppose. Um, I don't know. I got. Uh, I did get the Detroit Free Press Actor of the Year award for my my Henry Higgins, but I wouldn't have been able to do it without the wonderful Judy Blazer. She was a terrific advisor. It was just great. I didn't want to do it with anybody else. I never, no, I did. No, I did. And I did it quite a few times. We did it in Detroit for the Michigan Opera and uh, and also at Dayton. Oh, there's a funny story. I'll come up with that in a minute. 
Um, no, I'll tell you now. Michael Palin of the Monty Pythons was doing a book tour, and uh, he heard that Nancy and I were in <laughs> going to do that fair lady in Dayton, Ohio, and he thought, well, what the hell? Uh, I'll go and I'll go and see them. And how he got there, I don't know. I suppose you can get to Dayton and get anywhere. And he arrived, and uh, he saw the matinee, and then uh, he had to go on, but. We sat. We went in some sort of civic hall just nearby the theatre, and we were sitting chatting. And um, suddenly, a rather drunk man came out of a wedding reception that was going on just over the way, and he paused, took a look at Michael. What are you doing here? And Michael said, "Well, I'm. I was thinking of moving here. Actually, I'm just here to scope out the real estate." Really? <laughs> oh. oh. And he went off, and and we said, I think we'd better be in haste to retreat, don't you? And he said, not at all. So we went away, and goodness knows, he probably went back into the reception and said, you'll never guess who I see that. And they all poured out, and there would be nobody there. Poor fellow. He's probably still in the funny farm. Um, nobody believed a word of it. Anyway, so yes, we did it at Dayton. We did it at Detroit. That was part of the deal, I think. We also did it, I think, in California. I can't remember that bit of the trip, but I know we did, yes. And uh, so that was all part of that Michigan Opera job in 1986. And then uh, then I did it uh, at Paper Mill Playhouse, again with Julie Blasé, as I call her. <laughs> and uh, that was really fun, too. And then later, a fellow called Gary Griffin directed a 12-man version of uh, My Fair Lady, which we did at uh, the Mercator and at Hartford Stage, an odd little tour, um, with 12 people. Actually, it worked fine. They had Michael Comstey playing um, Higgins uh, in, at the Mercator, and they asked me to play Pickering, and I thought, well, it's a piece of cake, I suppose it's all right. God, I was bored. Never play Pickering if you played Higgins. There is, I mean, it's not, you're not judging the other Higgins. You're just thinking, oh, I've got nothing to do. <laughs> and then you disappear. It's like um, Pelinor in um, Camelot. He arrives, he's supposed to raise a few laughs, and then disappears. No, his absence is never explained. And Pickering wanders off, and he's never explained. It's all leftovers there. Fortunately, I was, um, Michael had something else to do. So when we went to Hartford, I took over the role, having done it before. And that was quite fun to do. Except, uh, was it the opening night? I think it was the first preview. I, uh, I walked off into the wings, and it was the one exit that we hadn't had time to take. And I walked straight into a stagehand and knocked my front teeth out. And uh, I heard them tinkling onto the floor. I mean, he obviously had a bullet-like head. And I thought, I can't go on, can I? And I no, there was blood pouring from my mouth. And I looked hopeless, you know. That's an impersonation. Um, I could hardly go out and say I've grown accustomed to my face. Or even her face, when I hadn't grown accustomed to my new face. Um, it was the July the 4th weekend. And um, I actually got far. At, it was just before the scene where she is having tea with Mrs. Higgins. And uh, she tells him to get stuffed. You remember that just before the end of the song, I walked the musical. And uh, I even had the presence of mind, if you can call it that, to shout, mother, mother, as he does at the beginning of that scene, from the wings. But there was no way I was going back on stage. And the audience would have fainted, I should think. It was a terrible sight, pouring blood. Um, so the two of them sat there, and time passed. 
by which time I was about to faint, so I had to go and lie down on the sofa and play ground floor. <laughs> Finally, the stage manager, who was out at the front, that's why they always ought to be on stage, um, realised there was something amiss, managed to get a message back and found out. And, uh, and so they never got to, to see how the play resolved itself, because I was really not in a position. But it was a July the 4th weekend, and they found a dentist who put something back in again, and um, sad because my wife and a friend had just come up to see me. They spent some time at the dentist's office. There was one man who obviously didn't didn't want to spend time with his family because he was quite happy to spend the afternoon with me. Obviously, a very dedicated dentist. Sort of put me back together again, and I was back again on the Monday. Wow! So um, that was a bit of luck, but uh, it's not one I want to do again. I think I think I've done life already, and. Uh, I think I'm a little nervous about it, frankly. <laughs> um, yeah. And so you've done a, a lot of Noel Coward plays on Broadway and often. Do you think that there's a specific art to sort of getting the humor or, as an actor? Um, oh. I suppose. Uh, the thing is, yes, you, you have to try and find what they're really saying below the surface. Yeah. Um, as he always said. And he, um, I have a letter from him somewhere, but uh, he, he is advising a man called uh, Roderick Cook, who did a show called O'Coward? You can't, no, O'Coward, yes. He, uh, with, with an amalgamation of all his stuff in a sort of review. And it says, um, Dear Roddy, etc., 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 etc. And I do find in comedy, my comedy does not work if people try to be funny on top of funny lines. They have to stand for themselves. And I thought, well, that's rather sound advice. Yeah. Um, you must not be aware that you're being funny. You can be aware of being a little witty, but uh, no, no more than that. And um, well, of course, I did Private Lives, didn't I? Yes. Oh, Collins. Oh, there's, there's another one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's Joan. Um, well, she, yes, she's not a monster, but she is somebody who will, will have her own way. And that's fine, that's fine. I mean, she said, honestly, if I was a man, they wouldn't call me a bitch. And I thought, well, no, they wouldn't. But yeah, I know what you're getting at. Um, <laughs> they'd say you were forceful. Yes. And goodness knows, she has kept going. I mean, really determined. She has made her career. I watched her, I think it was on one of the streamers, there was a program about Joan Collins, narrated by herself. And I have to say, I came away full of admiration for her. But um, she was a little annoying, I must confess. Um, Largely because I don't think she was really interested in doing a play. We dragged around the country. Uh, it looked as though somebody had uh, decided the route, I don't know, by just doing this. Uh, the map. At one stage, we went from Sacramento to Miami. I don't even know how the set arrived there in time. Just insane. Oh, Miami was fun, yes. The ushers kept rushing around when the audience started to laugh, saying they shouldn't laugh because it was disrespectful. That's a big bit dreary for private lives. Anyway, never mind. Um, that probably explained the rather muted response. Um, and we finally arrived here and played the broad the Broadhurst. Was it the Broadhurst? Yes. And uh, did about six weeks before the producer ran out of money. We hadn't made a great deal on the road. Um, big mistake was we played in Los Angeles at Christmas um, when nobody was there. I do remember she invited us all over for New Year's Eve. To her house, which was furnished entirely in white. White carpet, white sofa, white soft furnishings. 
And she gave our, our little son, Tim, who was at that time four, three, three, a box of chocolates. Those chocolates that had been delicately dusted with chocolate powder. You know the ones I mean? Fortunately, Nancy spotted it. As he just began to open it, snatched it from him. <laughs> um, we ran out of champagne rather early. And I thought, well, that's a bit sad. Um, never mind. Um, we better stay until midnight. And then suddenly the doorbell rang and her agent, Swifty Lazar, arrived. <laughs> and uh, suddenly several bottles of Cristal champagne appeared. Um, so I thought, oh, yes, well, yes. She obviously has a pecking order for her, for her people, you know. And we were obviously down the list. I do remember the open, when we were opening at the Denver Music Center. She sent her secretary around to say, Joan thought it would be awfully nice if we all had dinner afterwards at the, uh, in, somewhere in Denver. And she said, oh, 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 and by the way, it is Dutch. <laughs> no, no, we expected her to pay for all of us. <laughs> not she couldn't have done, but it was not likely. Um, knew her well enough by then. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, we got through it. I, um, <laughs> one particular classic incident in Washington, uh, we had uh, microphones. Um, I, had, I had a wig with a rather entertaining quiff, and the mic was there. She had this huge hair, and she had not only the microphone, but she also had the battery pack. She used to ask me not to break the head. Oh, God. Not to break the record too hard over her head in case I drove the battery pack into her skull. There were times when I was tempted. <laughs> when she slapped me, she made my teeth rattle. Nonetheless, um, you know, gentlemanly thing. So there we are. That might have been the opening night, or was it? Yes, could have been. Anyway, there we were in Washington, and suddenly I felt uh, the belt that was holding my battery pack uh, come loose, and the battery fell out, and it fell down the front of my trousers and started to pull my head down. So I thought, this is no good. So I had to do, try and get it to move around. This was the only two of us on stage. This is act two. Um, fortunately, the audience was somewhat distracted by her, quite gratuitously and not in the script, uh, showing that at 58, and that's how well, no long ago it was, she could do the splits. And she, she, for no apparent reason, did the splits. And that would, that clearly distracted everyone. So I moved the battery pack around the back because I don't know. And it started to pull my head back. And I, I became more and more Noel Coward, you know, with my nose in the air. Uh, and ever so often doing that when I hoped nobody was looking. I mean, this is on stage, for heaven's sake. I hope, I hope they were looking. But be that as it may, I finally got off and said, God. Oh, I hope that never happens again. And she said, why? Why? Was something wrong? She had never noticed. There were two of us on stage, and I was going through this agony and torment. And, uh, well, you know, I think that sort of sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> and another actress you did coward with was Angela Lansbury. Later. Ah, yes. Oh, well, now. Yes. Well, she doesn't stay. She's, she's not one of the gallery of uh, sacred monsters. She's, oh, yeah. She's just a sweetheart. She was... Uh, Terrific. Yes, I did, a, I did a murder she wrote for her years ago. Oh. How we ever originally got in touch, but we were we found a letter that I'd written to her and her husband about something or other. Obviously, we knew them quite well. I don't know whether I'm losing my marbles, but I don't remember quite how well. <laughs> but anyway, she, I did a murder she wrote. Um, uh, I, play, I played uh, Patrick McGowan's um, second in command. It's the only episode in Murder She Wrote where attention was drawn to the fact that not only she, but several of her relatives had all been accused of murder. Because, of course, the thing about the series that drove me crazy was that nobody ever referred to it. And she never said, oh, not again. 
I mean, everywhere she went, she was like the plague. People dropped dead. And I, I always found that rather annoying. I mean, even Sherlock refers to previous cases, you know. But anyway, be that as it may. It was, it was rather fun. Juliet Mills was the defence counsel. As I say, Patrick McGowan was my lead counsel. I gave it an abominably over-the-top performance. <laughs> Makes me shudder to look at now. And, uh, oh, and the villain was a um, famous star of cinema noir, Claire Trevor. Um, and she was the killer, it turned out. She seemed to be a respectable matriarch, but she was the killer. Anyway, uh, I had great fun doing that. And... Uh, and then years later, but it wasn't to do with Angela, um, my friend Michael Blakemore, who I'd known for years, who directed Drivers on Parade, who directed Candida with Deborah Carr, there's another one. God, it's littered, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And uh, it, well, he directed me over here in Benefactors. And um, what else did he do? Lots of stuff. And the film of Drivers on Parade. We, uh, we're still in touch. He's very much in touch. He's now 94. Ah. Uh -huh. And was very interested in the recent production of The Life at the uh, at the Encore Theatre. Oh. He took a very dim view of the um, of the press that Billy Porter was giving out about how he'd solved the problems of the show. <laughs> and he just didn't think there were any. Um, <laughs> he was a bit annoyed about that. But I didn't go, and nor did uh, anyone else. I don't think of his friends um, because the tickets were too expensive, and we didn't have an inn. Oh, but uh, yes, yes. So he asked me to do it. He said, there's not much to do, you're only playing the doctor, but it'll be fun. And it was huge fun. She was delightful. Well, we did it, uh, first of all, here with Rupert Everett and uh, Christine Ebersole and Jane Atkinson. And then we went to England and uh, and then we went on tour here. Uh, so we, I got a lot out of it, that one, and, uh, and saw lots of her. And uh, became very fond. She's just the most delightful person. She's just, yeah. she does the job. She occasionally, as do we all, and I don't, you know, I'm not pointing the finger because uh, I'm as guilty as she is, but she did say one thing when <laughs> slip of the tongue, but we were all sitting there, and uh, instead of saying, I believe there is a, um, what would it be, what are they called, a poltergeist, um, she said, uh, she circled around the, uh, the sofa, and we were all sitting there looking rather nervous, and said, Words to the effect, I have reason to believe there is a psychopath in this room. <laughs> we thought, oh, it's turned into a murder she wrote. I don't know that she'd said it, but it was, uh, it was a moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be curious, have you ever turned down a role? Well, if I was completely unsuited for it, yes. Oh. Um, mm, not many, no. I do remember my agent sent me up. For, for a TV to play a Mexican drug lord, an overweight Mexican drug lord. And I said, what? what have, you, have you looked at me lately? Uh, no. So, I mean, you know, that's happened once. Oh, and there is the, the famous occasion where I... Um, yeah, literally, you've heard this story many, many times, but it actually happened to me. Um, I went, uh, I went for a um, what was it? It was a, a, some sort of commercial. Uh, what was it actually? A film? Well, why should I? Well, I was hoping you'd ask this. Question. Oh, it, it was Turok, Dinosaur Hunter, a character breakdown. First one is a guy you can trust, calm, masculine, like a guide on American Sportsman. Um, 
he's a Scott Glenn, Scott Glenn Garrisonese guy becoming Dennis Hopper on acid. <laughs> this is a real acting job and should show us a range from authority figure to lunatic killer. The calm voice is the counterpoint. counterpoint. He could be English, like a Simon Jones. Or American, with a soothing feel, almost like a butler. Oh, God, there we go again. Well, I thought, as I looked at this, I thought, that's funny. Nobody told me about this. I, I called up my agent, and he said, oh, I have the hardest job getting them to see you. I said, what do you mean? I, I am a Simon. I'm the Simon Jones. What do you mean, a Simon Jones? I mean, I assume that's the one I mean. What do they mean? The, the English test cricketer, can't be. Or the drummer for the verve. And um, no, he said, I don't know why. They just said they wanted to type. And I mean, you've heard that story, and you can't believe that this is it. I didn't get the job, by the way. And uh, and I have attached to the bottom here a cartoon that was from the New Yorker, which is uh, of some people uh, auditioning a ring-tailed lemur on a cane. And it says... I'm sorry, we don't want a ring-tailed lemur. We want a ring-tailed lemur type. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, one has heard these stories. You know, <laughs> but it actually happened to me, and I have the proof. <laughs> that was the one thing I was determined to take away was the specs so that I could prove to people that such a thing happened and that I was recognised as a type. It didn't even do me any good. I wasn't even charging extra. I was still charging scale. I don't... Well... I don't know. Maybe they went another way. I hate auditions. <laughs> so I'd love to ask about a play you did with Tom Stoppard or by Tom Stoppard, the 15-minute Hamlet then? Oh, yes. Well, I've done a few with Tom Stoppard. Because, um, of course, the real thing was his. And I also did Hapgood, a production of Hapgood, um, which was completely unintelligible. It was to me. None of us understood. My friend Nigel Hawthorne, with whom I had appeared in Privates on Parade, did it in London. He said, we tried to get Tom to explain what was going on, but he wouldn't tell me. He said, it, it, it's on the page. Then it's not on the page. Hapgood is a ridiculously complicated play. Except that my wife came to see it about 17 times when we were doing it at the Doolittle in Los Angeles, and she said, suddenly said, it's not complicated at all, I realise now. The spy with the briefcase is the one at the beginning. It's, except from me, that's how it's solved. Anyway, it was a bizarre experience. Uh, Roger Reese was my agent. I was the uh, the head spy, and Judy Davis was the was the leading lady, who was quite quite bonkers. Um, a friend of mine came along, who knew knew her very well, an actor called Bill Hookins, and he said, "How are you getting on with Judy?" I said, "She's trying to go so crazy. I think she's a little mad." He said, "Oh, I wish you'd mentioned it before. Treat her like a six year old child. She'll be fine." Well, it was too late. We were already into the play. She hated the play. She hated us. She hated Britain. She hated the spies. Um, she's a very talented actress, nonetheless, but a difficult lady, I think it might be said. Almost more difficult than any of the people we have spoken of before. Yes. However, um, yes, uh, I had been the roundabout doing Brides on Parade, and the next thing on, on the line was to do the real, real Inspector Hound. Um, and it's not a very long play, so they thought they'd do something else. And we do the 15-minute Hamlet, um, which is part of the, is it called the Dog's Troop Hamlet? I don't know what it is. But do you, I think it's, how many is it? How many minutes? Well, 15, and then you do a, a seven-minute one, um, which was hairy. You know, we had one screen, and we'd just keep running around like lunatics. Um, it sort of worked, and then the audience fell about laughing. 
And I, oh yes, and uh, when I was doing Waiting in the Wings, um, I was in uh, Brady McCall's dressing room when Jason Robards came in and he said, oh, I remember you. It was my it was favorite thing I ever saw was the 15 minute Hamlet. He said, <laughs> I thought, well, from Jason Robards, that's rather, that, that, that's rather good. Um, yes, it was extremely silly. And uh, we were sort of used to doing it because I, I did a lot of review when I was at Cambridge. So I was quite used to running around the back, changing costume, char charging around to do another sketch. And that uh, this was fundamentally what it is. Except, of course, as Hamlet, I was the only one who didn't change. <laughs> I still wore the black thing and the blonde wig. And uh, I have a photograph of it somewhere. But I can't, I can't, I'd love to show it to you, but I haven't got it handy. I do remember, though, talking to him about Hapgood. And uh, I had the temerity to ask him, ask him what it was really about. And he said, um, you know, it's very, very interesting. He said, um, when I wrote it, the whole landscape was terribly clear in my mind. But now I'm afraid well, the fogs rolled in. <laughs> and that was all I got. So there you are. Well, that's one way of saying mind your own damn business. <laughs> <laughs> and that indeed was, was his response. Um, and did you, so I know you've done a lot of musicals and um, encores and musicals and Mufti and a lot of rare things to bring back. Is there anyone that you didn't get to do that you have wanted to do or would still want to do? I'd really like to do um, Darling of the Day as a full production. Oh. Um, we had great fun doing it at York. Uh, and it's the only one they've actually done twice by public demand. And um, it, it, it just worked very well. Um, Julie's time had already gone, but... Uh, his widow was there, Margaret, and uh, and she loved it, and uh, and it's got the most wonderful music in it, and it's quite a clever story about the artist who decides to become anonymous, but his pictures keep turning up, and the unscrupulous—it's very contemporary—the unscrupulous gallery owner uh, wants to know who's doing these paintings, um, but is perfectly happy to sell them. It's interesting stuff, and uh, and a good story, and um, that I would like to do. Um, we did Sherlock Holmes too at the um, uh, at the York. Everything you have, I, I, you just have to imagine it because Alex Cohen did a production of it with Fritz Weaver years and years ago, and he threw everything at the stage. They even had a montage. Oh no, some sort of how they showed it. I don't quite know. Were they little figures or puppets? They did Queen Victoria's funeral. It's all completely unnecessary. Um, but at the York, of course, it was cut down to the bare bones. And actually, that was fascinating. And all three uh, of the creatives were there. Um, there one, one came over from England. Jerome Coopersmith lived here anyway. And there was a Marion Gurdjieff was, um, came down from uh, Canada. And, uh, and it was wonderful to have them there. They've all gone now. I'm not sure about Jerome, but um, the other two have. And uh, that, that was fun. Very yeah. fun. Um, and it could be done again. The thing is, it's actually a rather good show, but it was overproduced by Alex apparently, and it just collapsed under the weight of its um, <laughs> the weight of its production. Um, that's what I like to do. Not not my fair lady. We've done that, been there, and done that. I don't know. Um, I, I never know what's going to turn up, um, and that's part of the part of the fun of it. <clears throat> do I set my heart on various roles? No, I don't really. I'd love to play a villain in James Bond, um, though the, the immediacy is now passed over because uh, 
it would I would have been able to keep it in the family if I Daniel Craig had been uh, still been Bond, because uh, how I discovered this, um, I think because he bears a striking resemblance to my brother in New Zealand. I suddenly realised when I saw him in the movies. I thought, God, wait a minute, Craig. Didn't my father's sister, Aunt Ros, didn't she marry Bill Craig? Could he actually be related? Is that a family resemblance? So I got in touch. My father was not very good at keeping in touch with his sister's children. I think he, because she had seven of them, she was he was frightened they'd all arrive at the same time. Demand to be entertained. I don't know what it was. Um, but I did. I managed to reach out to them, and uh, and Jenny, the eldest of the children, said yes, yes, yes. He's uh, he's my brother's son. I can't remember which one it is, and uh, I had to laugh because my mother had always said that I got the acting from him, from her. And my father never said a thing. Um, well, my father probably never knew, um, but there you are. Um, that would have been quite funny. <laughs> The the one I believe play with music that you did on Broadway was Ring Round the Moon with Marion Seldes and Yes, yes, Jerry Gutierrez directed. Yeah. Um yes, that was an interesting shambles. Um <laughs> uh, I, I, to this day I don't really know what the play was about. Um and Marion Seldes took over because Irene Worth had a stroke when we were doing the technical rehearsal. Um uh, it didn't kill her off, I'm glad to say. No, she survived for a little longer, but she obviously couldn't do the show. And I'd always wondered, to be quite honest, why somebody like Marion Seldes was understudying Irene Worth for this production. Um, and, oh, she was in the right place at the right time. And uh, and Fritz Weaver, who played Sherlock Holmes in the Alex Cohen production, was also playing the, uh, the ruthless arms manufacturer. I'm not quite sure what it was about. Toby Stevens played... Um, uh, the two roles of the twins. I've forgotten them. He does play two roles. He required him to run off stage in one direction, run like hell around the back, so everyone had to be out of the way and come on again as his other, as his other brother. There was a lot of that going on. Um, I don't remember there being any music much. Um, I didn't sing in it. Um, it's a, yes, it's a curious play. Then all the plays by Henri are a bit curious. I quite know where they're going in a rather strange French way. We've done a few of them. Um, I used to run this theatre company called Tact, the Actors' Company Theatre, along with Scott Evans and Cynthia Harris. I didn't found it, but I came in soon enough after and ran it for about 12 years. We, we wound up just before the pandemic, which was rather shrewd. Um, but we used to do plays, rehearsed readings, um, which we rehearsed for a week beforehand. And we used to do them with no scenery, and we used to do them straight out. Um, straight out front so you could choose your close-up the book and uh, people became quite addicted to them we had uh, quite a large following and we do plays that would not, would not normally be seen except maybe done by the roundabout or Lincoln Center things like the admirable Crichton or um, Dial M for Murder and classics the Chalk Garden and uh, well an endless list we did an amazing list I read so many plays and we had such fun doing them we decided we were an entirely actors-run company, and we decided that we were tired of being told what to do by casting directors. We wanted to play parts that we wanted to play, and uh, as long as it was within our range, as opposed to being a Mexican drug dealer, you know, <laughs> um, we did them, and they were great, greatly enjoyed. It was like going to an animated radio show, you know, and we we had rudiments of costume, 
to help the picture along. And then later on, we started to do what we called muffers, more fully realized productions, in which case we did complete productions at Theatre Row. We did The Cocktail Party, which was very well received. Um, we did Home, did it with my friend Larry Keith, Cynthia Harris, and Cynthia Darling. And, um, and we produced uh, something of a nightingale, something of a nightingale by Jonesy Williams. And, uh, and a production by, um, what was it called? Oh, Incident at Vichy, um, which people said was the best production they'd seen. Um, uh, still, uh, we did it for virtually nothing. I think to remember, well, yes, I, we were going to do a play called The Memorandum by um, Václav Havel, the first president of Czechoslovakia post the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall and the USSR. But he was also a playwright, and uh, I thought it was going to be a difficult play, but I was going to do it anyway. And uh, uh, I went to see what's the play by Noel Coward. Oh, never mind. It'll come to me in a minute. It's too annoying to have just gone out of my head. But be that as it may, I went with my son to it, and uh, we went off, off and had dinner. And on my way back, I got knocked by, down by a car. Um, which was a judgment, actually, because I got out of having to do the memorandum. But the embarrassing thing was when we went to the lawyer to see if we could get some damages, because uh, we were in the right crossing the road, and he was on his phone, the driver. Um, he didn't hit me very hard at all. I didn't sustain many injuries. Indeed, the lawyer said, what a pity, you weren't more badly injured. You could have got more money. <laughs> I thought, well, that's typical. Um, but uh, they came around and they asked me how much I was earning. And I said, I can't tell you, it's just too embarrassing. I mean, this is my theatre company, and we're there on Theatre Row. All right, $214 a week. He said, you mean a show? No. And I said, no, 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 that's, that's what we are paying. Well, that's what we pay, and you know, we've got nothing else to do, and that's what we do. Oh, he said, oh dear, so compensation for wages lost. It's not giving very much, is it? I thought, well, there you are, the actor's life, eh? <laughs> Up and down. <laughs> you got something in the end. Thank you. <laughs> slap in the face, yes, that was all right. And I didn't have to do the play, which I really had rather fallen out of love with, by the first week of rehearsal. But uh, it was a rather radical way of getting out of it, I think. And do you usually find that you have a sense of how a play will do during rehearsal or? Yes, I think so. I mean, you do go to some place and you think, how on earth did this get here? <laughs> Would they, are they all under some sort of group hypnosis? Do they all think it'll get better? Do they think maybe it'll turn the corner? There'll be some strange chemical op operation that this otherwise pretty lame-brained effort is not going to work. You know, what, what were you thinking? What were they thinking? <laughs> uh, let me think. No, not really. I mean, I, yes, I had great faith in the herbal bed. It had run for a year and a half in London, after all. And uh, we ran for a week, um, which was rather a pity. It was about whether Shakespeare had syphilis. It's not a terribly good idea. Um, but it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was hugely successful in England. For some reason, it wasn't at all here. And I remember throwing away the opening night flowers before they'd even started to wilt. You know, that was a bit sad. I do remember going to Sardi's, however, the one matinee we had with my friend Tuck Milligan. Um, and we thought, well, we may as well go and get, have the actor's menu while we're entitled to it. 
not that you can't go anyway, whenever you want to, if you're an actor. And we were sitting there, and his friend Dougie Sills was sitting at another table. He was enjoying great success at Scarlet Pimpernel. And Tuck went over to say hello to him. He explained the sad story that uh, we'd already had our notice, and we'd only opened on a Monday. And he said, oh dear, what terrible bad luck. Anyway, we went back, we had our dinner, and we got asked for the bill. Dougie had paid for it, which I thought was very sweet. Ah, yeah. A good man. I'm glad to be working with him on Gilded Age. Oh, yes, we are. Well, that's the interesting thing about Gilded Age. I sat down at the read-through back in March <laughs> 2020 and thought, my God, my entire career is flashing in front of me. I've worked with most of these people. This is absurd. At all different stages. And the ones I, I mean, Donna Murphy was in Privates on Parade here when I first met her. And we did the workshop of passion together. Um, she went on to do it. I did not. Ron Grishke got on that, wasn't he? <laughs> and um, uh, Michael Countryman, who was, I think, in one of the first productions I did over here, Woman in Mind, with Stockard Channing. Will Irwin was in the cast. Well, there, I mean, you know, I don't have to recite them. They're all in the cast. And, yeah. uh, and I can just tick off the cast that I've, I've been with them with, you know. Even Nathan. Extraordinary. So that was rather fun, and uh, and I felt the wheel is had come full circle in a way. Yeah. Uh, maybe I've been preparing for this all, all this time. Well, at least I'm getting paid more than two hundred and fourteen dollars. <laughs> and uh, it's quite a wonderful show. I loved it. And are there plans for a season two? Are you? Oh yes. No, they're going to start at the end of this month. Oh, that's. Mm, but they're going off to the mansions of Newport, which I would love to go to, but unfortunately. According to the story, Christine Baranski, my employer, doesn't like the Newport and doesn't have a house there. And the butler can hardly go on his own. So <laughs> I'm afraid I'm stuck back in New York. I don't think I'll start filming until the end of June. Oh. Um, but there you are. That means I've got a little longer. And what, what was the experience like of filming that during the pandemic with all of the... Oh, the precautions? I had 102 COVID tests. <laughs> I mean, one a day, some day, some before. Um, uh, we sat in these strange sort of carnival tents with transparent walls, um, separately, sitting on director's chairs while waiting to, to actually go on set. So we could chat to each other. We'd take our masks off as long as nobody else came in. Oh, God, it was awful. Um, <laughs> we rehearsed in masks. We only took them off uh, for the actual shot. I don't know what the crew looked like. I, I hope when I see them all again that they'll forgive me for having cut them dead in the street because I don't know what the bottom half of their faces look like. I never saw them without their masks. And um, it's, it's strange. One just got used to it. But it's an awful bore. I mean, doing the play just recently, The um, Trouble in Mind at the Roundabout. Nobody would come backstage. We were supposed to wear our masks except right up to the last minute before we went on. I was, of course, the only person who forgot to take my mask on off, but it was at the... Uh, at the uh, dress rehearsal, and I didn't do it again. Um, but I couldn't understand why they were looking at me rather peculiarly. The rest of the people on the cast, in the cast, I wonder if they could hear me. I suppose they could. But anyway, um, somehow I remembered there was always somewhere, someone in the wings to make sure we didn't get yeah. our masks on. Ugh, what a drag! And, uh, and spit tests every day. That's how I found I had COVID, though, mind you. Oh. On December the twenty-sixth. I had did a spit. I did a test at home, negative. Went into the theatre four and a half hours later for a spit test, which is obviously rather more efficient. And the following morning, it came out positive. So I had to stay away for ten days because I had no symptoms whatever. And if I hadn't been playing in the theatre, 
goodness knows how much I'd have spread it around. And she must have been going on anyway. I can't have been the only person. As I said, no symptoms at all. But I did test positive. Then and at the end. Oh. <laughs> so I'm glad, I, I hope this will all pass over and we'll get back to normal. Yes, yes, me too. And, mm. and what I, I'd be curious to ask a little bit more about trouble in mind and what that was like with Lachance and Charles Randolph Wright. Oh. Yes, well, I knew Charles from, I've done a couple of workshops with him. And, um, and Nona Hendricks was a very good friend of mine because my her partner, Vicky Wickham, <clears throat> who worked with Michael Lindsay Hogg on a program called Really Steady Go. You see how all these things all link <laughs> in. It's extraordinary. Um, yes, um, Nona Hendricks did the music, and she's an old friend, as indeed is Vicky, Charles Randolph, right? And uh, he was the one who said, uh, would I like to play this part? It's not really interesting. I mean, it's not, he didn't say it wasn't interesting. He said there wasn't much of it, but to them I, I said, you're, you're crazy. I mean, I'm supposed to be a, a senile Irish doorman. Well, I said, all right, I'll go, what the hell? Um, and it fits in rather neatly. I'd just finished doing The Gilded Age. And uh, oh, it's Broadway, what the hell? And, um, and it was wonderful, because I got to work with the lovely Lachance, who was just adorable, and share a dressing room with Chuck Cooper, uh -huh. uh, who, uh, who did the life with my friend Michael Blakemore all those years ago, and won a Tony for it. Um, Michael Blakemore run, rang me in the dressing room at one stage, and I was able to surprise him by saying, well, here's Chuck, have a chat with him too. Um, no, it was very enjoyable, and we got really good notices, as you, as you probably saw. Unfortunately, it being Omicron time, yeah, we just didn't get the audiences we should have had. Those that came were vociferous in their enthusiasm, oh. but it was all a bit, uh, a bit surreal and strange. Yes, I, I enjoyed that part because I was the only one who was really sympathetic and, uh, yeah. and kind to Lachance's character, um, and it was fun to do. To, uh, to open, close the second act, close the last scene. Yeah, it was rather nice, that. And, uh, and a very nice, easy job. Rolled out of bed, a couple of stops on the, on the Sunday, <laughs> into the theatre. Wear pretty well what I wear anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, not very strenuous and very agreeable. Very agreeable job. And, uh, and very interesting to have discovered this play. And, uh, yeah. And very instructive, too, to what people have to put up with. That one sort of takes for granted. Yeah. Anyway. And so I'd love to ask you just one last question, which is with such a great career in acting in the theatre, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out? Yeah. People usually say, don't. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, because every, every career is different. Um, and everyone depends on so many strange strokes of good fortune or luck or knowing people at the right time or bumping into them. I mean, I, I'm now doing The Gilded Age as a result of having played George V in Downton Abbey. And the only reason I got that was because I met the producer, Gareth Neem, at the Savile Club in London. And uh, we chatted about anything but Downton Abbey. And sometime during the conversation, he suddenly said, oh, you're rather good at George V. I said, what? I hadn't even grown a beard at that time. So, I mean, I didn't even know. I should probably not shave the beard, by the way. I seem to get work coming my way now. The beard seems to be my... I should have grown it years ago. Uh, be that as it may, though, I grew my own beard, did that. And, um, and it may be that uh, they were rather grateful that I... <clears throat> uh, <laughs> I managed to pull off the scene of inspecting the... Um, 
the King's Troop Royal Horse Artillery with 300 extras, the band, uh, the regimental band and all the cast of uh, Downton Abbey um, on the back of a horse which I hadn't ridden for 40 years and not with much pleasure then. Um, but somehow we got through it and we took it in four takes and I think they were sufficiently grateful, <laughs> I like to think, that they, um, they put me in the Gilded Age. And Garrus would say, well, one of the great advantages is that you happen to live in New York. Yeah. And I thought, yes, that's probably the most important advantage. <laughs> but apparently Julian Fellows and Michael Engler and Gareth Dean put their heads together and said, we want somebody who's quite different from Carson, the exact opposite of Carson. And I, I suppose it didn't take long to think, well, maybe the king, he'll give, give him the job. I mean, it was quite fun doing playing the king because um, the extras would sort of nod and curtsy as they went by. <laughs> well, now people tend to throw me their coats and hats. Ask me to put them away. <laughs> but that, I mean, again, so to go back to your original question, I mean, that happened to be right place, right time, and this is how it's been all the way through. I just can't quite believe my luck. Um, I suppose that I, I, somehow I'll title my memoirs in some respect. Unless I call it The Butler Did It. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. It's been a pleasure to meet you. And oh, thank you. I've been around. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I'm joined by star of stage and screen, Joyce Boulefant. Joyce Boulefant appeared in Tall Story and the Paisley Convertible on Broadway, as well as Auntie Mame in Stock, and she starred on screen in The Happiest Millionaire, Love Thy Neighbor, The Bill Cosby Show, I Hate Kids, Weird Science, The Donald O'Connor Show, Big John, Little John, Airplane, Match Game, Hanging by a Thread, and maybe most famously, The Mary Tyler Moore Show as Marie Slaughter. Boulefant is also the author of the memoir My Four Hollywood Husbands and the autobiographical plays Life Upon the Wicked Stage and Remembering Helen Hayes with Love about her mother-in-law. You can see her perform that show in Nyack, New York on Saturday, October 8th. The performance will be followed by an interview with Richard Skipper and you can find tickets to the program at the link in the episode description. You won't want to miss the show or this interview, so make sure to tune back in next time, and thanks again for listening.